This episode is dedicated to my brother-in-law, Ramon. My love, prayers, and tight hugs out to him, and of course, my sister and niece, praying that things improve and through God's intervention, Ramon will make a full recovery. I love you, Ramon. Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Thank you to all who have purchased a Your Positive Imprint item. My very first shoppers were Hugh, Celia, Lilibeth, Melody, Mamie. Thank you so much. The shop is open with free shipping. Yourpositiveimprint.com and click on shop. Thank you so much for the emails with questions regarding my left eye. I don't have any answers just yet, and I'm hoping to get those answers soon. And I returned to the doctor this week to see if the cortisone shot has brought down inflammation so the fluid can leave the back of my eye. My eyesight is not improved, and it is still difficult to read, which means editing is cumbersome. But I am filled with hope and positivity that I will regain some sight in that eye because science is fabulous and I also have an awesome, excellent ophthalmologist as I continue to have hope. And with that hope, I decided to do something to look forward to because I just feel and my mom just knows that I will gain some sight back in that eye. So I decided to do something different with my show. And I think you are going to love it. It's pretty rad. I will begin a rise to the challenge with your positive imprint, inspiring themed quotes from the guests you love. I will continue with the first and third Mondays with guest conversations. And I will do on some of the other Mondays and maybe not all of them. Mondays, but a less than 10-minute episode filled with inspiring quotes and positivity accompanied by great music composed by Chris Knoll. I might also provide a commentary every now and again, but the purpose is to have a short, less than 10-minute episode to bring inspiration, positivity, and hope. Here's a quick schedule. June 21st, this episode, an education on honeybees. June 28th, queen honeybees. July 5th, Scottish guest Danny Brown. July 12th, rise to the challenge, what's your PI sustainable agriculture and global food security inspirations? July 19th, guest Alex Liu and board gaming with dogs. (laughs) July 26th, rise to the challenge, what's your PI human rights inspirations? Music by the talented Chris Knoll, chrisknoll.com, C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. My website, yourpositiveimprint.com. Thanks for listening, and please leave positive reviews and hit that five-star rating. And please follow, subscribe, or download this podcast. This is a free podcast on my website or any podcast platform. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Conscientious beekeeping, sustainable beekeeping. These are important words for guest Melanie Margarita Kirby, member of Tortugas Pueblo in New Mexico. Melanie has been all over the world studying wildlife, especially honeybees. Her studies landed her with Washington State University, where she is finishing her studies in entomology. 
Continuing her studies in sustainable beekeeping and honeybee research, she was awarded a Fulbright National Geographic Scholarship, where her research took her to Spain. But unfortunately, COVID changed her research trajectory, and she had to return to the States. Melanie is committed to having a hand in maintaining the world's honeybee population through her research and conscientious queen bee rearing. <laughs> Melanie Margarita Kirby, it is so good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. So nice to be here. It's so wonderful to meet you. And you are in New Mexico. <laughs> First of all, if you could just tell us where your Pueblo is for the listeners. Sure. So my Pueblo is actually located in southern New Mexico, very close oh. to the Texas-Mexico border. And we are cousins to Isleta del Sur and Taos Pueblos. So as history has it, a lot of the Pueblos, especially in the northern end of the, of the region, would migrate down uh, for winter because it's very cold up in the Rocky Mountains. And so a lot of the older folks and some of the infirm and some of the youth would, would travel down and made a settlement in southern New Mexico area and ended up staying. And so that's, that's my Pueblo. We are not federally recognized, which has gone back and forth between tribal politics for some time. But we are still very much active. We're recognized by the state and we do practice our feast days and our cultural traditions. So what do you mean by not federally recognized? Does that mean you don't receive funding from the federal government? It, exactly. So I don't have what some federal federally recognized tribes have are what they call a certificate of, of Indian birth, a CIB, which then entitles them to Indian health services and other programs, federal federally funded programs. And since my particular tribe is not federally recognized, we don't have access to that. Some of that has to deal with blood quantum and others, it's just a political nature or I want to say bureaucratic, probably more <laughs> better put. And and it's unfortunate to a certain degree because the fact that there are many tribes, over 500 plus tribes across what we call Turtle Island or North America, those are just the ones that are recognized. But there are many more than that, that, that still exist, that still practice their traditions but they're not federally recognized. So I'm I'm one of those tribes that is not federally recognized, but we'll see if that changes. Wow, thank you for that information. I appreciate it. Well, now we're here to talk about pretty much your lifelong study of wildlife because you were at first in marine biology and then you moved and discovered honeybees. <laughs> Let's first start with your absolute love for wildlife and this dream that you had to study wildlife. Yeah. So growing up in the land of enchantment, which is our state motto here, yeah. we have such stark and drastic landscapes. And this, this area is known for not only the tricultural traditions between the indigenous peoples the Spanish that came in and then additional Europeans, but it's also where the desert and the plains and the Rocky Mountains come together. So we have a very, what you call, crenellated landscape, which means it's it's very interesting because we have everything from desert to tundra, and you can drive through most of it within a day's drive or even just a few hours. So having grown up in southern New Mexico, which is very much desert, it's considered lower elevation as 
as compared to the higher elevation northern end of our state. But Las Cruces sits at about, I think, 3,500 foot elevation. So it's still pretty high above sea level. So it's high desert. And I just really liked that the serenity that the desert landscape provides. I used to see lots of turtles. I really liked turtles. So we'd see lots of little desert turtles around and lizards, horny toads. And I really just was quite fascinated with all the little creatures that had adapted to living in such such a stark environment, right? We tend to think that the desert is dead, but it's actually very much alive. Yes, um, Animals are very smart and the plants are extremely intelligent because they've adapted to this particular landscape. I knew that when I went to college that I wanted to do something in the sciences. My my heritage is as a mestiza individual, meaning I'm mixed. So I've got not only my indigenous heritage, I've also got some Hispanic heritage. But in addition to that, as my last name suggests, is uh, Scottish-Irish. And my father is actually from the French Grenadines in the Caribbean. I've always had this fascination between not only the desert, but then also the ocean and that craving for... Yes, for the, I feel that too. Water. <laughs> right. So when I graduated from high school, I had gotten a scholarship to to go to University of Miami in Florida. And of course, I was just ecstatic to be going to the beach. And so I chose marine biology fisheries with a with a minor in ceramics, because I really that's my my other first love is ceramics. I really like working with clay and with pottery. So I embarked on that journey and it was extremely fun to be in a beach town, but the school <laughs> itself was the size of my hometown. And so my first couple of years, I started to really kind of get lost in that shuffle. And I had also really gotten into, this was sort of the dawn of EDM or electronic dance music. So I had started to get into raving and DJing and that sort of thing. My classes sort of fell to the wayside, but I would still show up and take the tests and I was getting Bs. But having come from a single parent household, my mother was a public school teacher for 34 years, Rosemary Kirby or Rosa Maria. Kirby, she really valued education. And I just always remembered it's like these little voices you hear value your education. And one of the things that she told me early on when I was young that I still remember today was just that education will set you free, gives you more options, right? And so I had this realization after Hurricane Andrew, which was in the early 90s, because that was my first time being in sort of a cataclysmic event, just the search for water, for fuel, for basic necessities was, it was the first time in my life that I realized that, wow, we are not above nature. <laughs> nature really can throw us some curveballs. And I just started to reevaluate things. And I realized that I, I did want to value my education more because even though I was passing and getting B's, I wasn't really learning the content. And I just felt that that wasn't in tune with my own personal philosophy and my own upbringing, which is to to be grateful for what you have and to show reverence for that and to also pay it back to the community. So I decided to return to New Mexico after a couple of years and graduated with my undergraduate degree. And I'd like to tell people that that degree was in philosophy, which is awesome to, to think about, great conversations, but doesn't necessarily pay the bills, right? So I knew that I would have to do some some additional training or education. And my mother had actually been enlisted in the United States Peace Corps when it had originally started. I recall her every once in a while saying that Peace Corps was the greatest experience she had ever had. I wanted to 
enlist in the Peace Corps and to be of service to the world at large and got stationed in Paraguay in South America. My assignment was beekeeping and I knew nothing about it beforehand, but that's what brought me to bees was it was by assignment. That is such an incredible journey. So how you were in the Peace Corps for what? You served your two years? Yes, it's a two-year, three-month commitment. I was initially stationed in a little town called Adigua, which was our training community. I was in the ag sector, and then also within that ag sector, they had crop extensionists and beekeeping extensionists. And so I was in the beekeeping extensionist program. And there were five of us who were, I guess, brave enough to check the little box that said we didn't mind working with stinging insects, which is <laughs> really funny because I remember that question on the application. And in my mind, I remember thinking, well, I just want to appear as flexible as possible. So sure, I didn't even think twice about it. And then come to find out, I guess a lot of people think twice about it before they mark that box. But um, <laughs> that's how I ended up getting that that assignment. So after my training there was predominantly in experiential learning techniques, because they knew we were going to be in communities where we were going to have to be serving as not only cultural um, ambassadors, but also technical ambassadors to communities that had requested technical assistance. And so we had language training because in Paraguay, in particular, they do speak Spanish or what they call Castilian, but it's not, it's not true Castilian. They also speak an indigenous language called Guarani. And so I had some training in Guarani and then cultural traditions because Paraguay, like Bolivia, they're the only two countries within South America that are landlocked. So their access to uh, progressive uh, modern situations is is pretty behind the times. It takes a while for for new things to to reach them. So it really was like stepping back in time. All the women worked from home. Very few women worked out of the home. They were all what you call ama de la casas or, you know, housewives. And the men worked in the fields. And so my actual community where I was stationed after training was called Calle Mill. And the particular zone I was in was actually called Colonia Independencia. And a lot of ex, I should say, ex-Nazis moved to that area after World War II to hide out. It was a little bit of a wine growing region. Unfortunately, there was a lot of deforestation for sugarcane production. Yeah. So that's how this community had had uh, asked for a beekeeping technician actually after they had had several agroforestry technicians there that were with the Peace Corps. And so our efforts were to try and help them diversify their their farming efforts, not so much to steer completely away from sugarcane, but to diversify it such that then deforestation wouldn't occur at such a rapid rate, and to help them generate a, a new income uh, revenue or income stream. So because they're uh, culturally, they're still very, I want to say rather subdued or quiet because they had lived under a dictatorship for so long, even though by the time I was there, they were already 30 years into democracy, they were still very nervous to speak their minds and use their voice. So a lot of them kind of went along with the norm. Nobody really ever stuck out. When you go to the capital city, though, it was a whole other story. People would be on skateboards with colored hair. It seemed like any other sort of metropolis. But I was five hours from the capital city, at least a five-hour bus ride. There's not a lot of infrastructure. Once you get out of the capital city, it turns into dirt roads. And my community in particular, we didn't even have bus service. So I would get dropped off on the side of the road and then have to hike in five kilometers. Once you got out of that capital city, everything became very, very rural very quickly. 
I inherited a little house or I bought it off of the previous volunteer and a dog. I inherited a dog named Joy Joy. And we didn't have running water. So I would have to go a couple doors down to the school, which had a well to get my drinking water. And I did have one light bulb and one outlet. So I did have electricity, but we didn't have bus service in that community. Wow, that is just so interesting. And the experience that you had was, my gosh, quadruple fold as you learn not just about the honeybees, but you learn the culture, the people, the past, the history, the the problems, the issues, the sustainability or not. Yeah, they'd have a lot of sort of enterprises move in. The cash crop at the time uh, that was being promoted in general across the country was what they called ka'ahe'e, which means sweet herb, which is stevia. And so at the time, though, I mean, stevia hadn't even been heard about here in the states but Paraguay was one of those initial countries that started growing it for exportation now we hear stevia all the time you can go to any place you can find it in a grocery store and so it's interesting how a lot of these countries that do have Paraguay in it itself is a subtropical country so they have a lot of growth they have a lot of moisture and so it's a good place to grow things when I left the U.S. to go enlist in the Peace Corps I was also in my early 20s, but I was kind of thinking like, oh, the U.S., we've got things, but we we have a lot to learn. We're, we're really not that great. And then I went to this country where I saw where their basic infrastructure was lacking. Women weren't really allowed nor expected to speak their minds. And it was a real wake-up call for me because I realized then just how lucky I was to have been born and raised in a country where I can exercise my rights. And so I came back a very much big, bigger patriot than I had been <laughs> prior to going, at least feeling more grateful for the opportunities that I had had, but also recognizing that our influence, our quote-unquote U.S. American influence in other countries is pretty is pretty deep because in the capital city, they when McDonald's had showed up, there were Coca-Cola signs everywhere, they'd gotten a movie theater, things like that. And on the one hand, while it was disturbing to see that sort of influence taking hold, to those companies, they're probably thinking, well, we're expanding, we're globalizing, this is great. But on the other hand, they were changing that landscape, that that local landscape, and from the mom and pop restaurants and stuff like that. However, those companies going in were providing a lot of jobs. And so now you had the opportunity, the youth who had more job opportunities, they were able to earn money. They could then go to school. They could go to technical college. They could go to university. I I got to see both sides of the coin and it really gave me a perspective that's kind of right in the middle. I feel that there's, especially in this quest for sustainability, technology, if we just think of technology and we think of the most sort of intense version of it, it may seem so far removed from us and seem really inappropriate. But if we if we scale it back and really match it more with what I like to really promote, which is biomimicry, which is utilizing nature's natural processes and forms to better support life and regenerative aspects of life, then I think we can see technology in such a way that we can use it responsibly, right? So the Peace Corps gave me this perspective that you can't necessarily keep the world one way or the other, that it's constantly in flux and our interactions, especially societally, will be changing over time. But how can we reconcile our differences and how can we find a common ground or a reconciliation, a compromise 
that is beneficial for everybody, not just the corporations and not just the politicians and not just the people or what have you, that it's something that can work for everybody and includes biodiversity which includes animals and wildlife, kind of getting back to that topic. While I was there, I got to see some great things. I got to see a lot of snakes, <laughs> some really cool spiders, beautiful birds, monkeys. And I was able to travel to neighboring countries on occasion. Got to go to the Pantanal in Brazil, which is the world's largest wetlands. And that's just fantastic. I got to fish for piranhas and then cook them for dinner, which was pretty <laughs> yummy. And yeah, I got to see big waterfalls in Argentina and of course the beaches and go through Uruguay. And so I, I really enjoyed that time, especially in my early 20s as I was coming of age. It really expanded my worldview above and beyond my own education or book smarts. I feel like I started to gain world intellect at that point. And I decided after doing beekeeping there because I ended up working with a lot of the women because in that particular culture, it was inappropriate for me to just work alone with a man, right? Anytime I'd have to go either visit a farmer, either the wife came or a child came, you always had a chaperone, which was fine. I didn't mind it, but it was just that type of culture was still very shy in those regards or very conservative in those regards. And so I ended up doing beekeeping a lot with the women and it made perfect sense because the men are out in the fields doing the farming and the women were the ones taking care of the pigs, the chickens, the kids, and now the bees. And it was just really awesome because we we had to build everything from scratch. They didn't have power tools, nonetheless, credit cards to buy things. So we um, made our own beehive boxes. We would do what's called a trasiego, which is actual uh, finding a wild swarm and, and relocating it into a box. And these women, it was great. They would start with one hive, maybe get up to two or three and harvest the honey. And we, we were able to start a, a, an additional women's comité, a, a women's group and do sewing projects and home gardens. And we started a little farmer's market in the nearby town. And with the money that these women earned, they were then able to buy their children's shoes, notebooks, pens, and you know pay for school because they didn't have public school. Elementary was still for a fee. And so a lot of these kids uh, would end up going, but just for a few years and then start working in the field. So now that their mothers were able to generate a little bit of income, that was the first thing the mothers wanted to do was to keep their child in school. So now they could pay for that and buy the supplies that the children needed to attend school. And that was that was really impactful for me because, again, as I mentioned, coming from a country where we have a lot of these things provided, but not realizing that's a gift that doesn't happen everywhere. Right. And of course, schools aren't all the same stateside. Some have more funding and some don't right, than others. Right. And and things aren't always fair. But the fact that we at least have something, I think, is is pretty significant. And yeah, so I ended up doing bees with the women there. I also did a stingless bee project with the kids, what's called melipona culture, which are stingless bees. And so they're little subtropical bees that instead of hanging their comb vertically, they actually stack it like little pancakes. And they make these little wax, I want to call them like thimbles or gourds that you could pop off and, and drink the honey. The honey is very, I want to say almost sour, kind of fermented, but the honey from the, from what they call jetei, from these little stingless bees was, was highly prized and, and considered extremely medicinal. And so they could sell it for a much higher price than even Apis mellifera or honeybee honey. But just for a little historical context, honeybees in the Americas 
they're considered an introduced species, right? So as settlers came and as colonizers came, they brought honeybees. And within South America itself, the in the 1950s, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Kerb. He's a Brazilian scientist. I know that, a geneticist. And he wanted to sort of breed a better bee because the European bees that had been brought over they did okay, but they weren't overly prolific. And he thought, well, if he could bring some from Africa where he had done some research and he saw how productive they were, he thought, well, maybe I can make a sort of a, a cross between the two and, and we'll have really productive bees here. Well, the research hives he had, the story goes either somebody removed the, the reduced entrance or took it off. These bees escaped. And so then they became known as Africanized or killer bees. And that was in the 50s. So then it took until the 80s for them to reach the southwest of the U.S. And now you'll find them in, in varying states along the, the southeast and south southwest of the U.S. In New Mexico, we're, we're lucky in that we have the Rocky Mountains coming down, right? So as a subtropical bee, these bees kind of hit those mountains and then they go east and west. They can't really go north. So in particular, where I have my farm and how I ended up in northern New Mexico in Taos was partially related to that. I'm mentioning that because we tend to think of honeybees as being an introduced species or, or an exotic species. And over time, because they're a generalist pollinator, they really have been exploited. As a species, they've become exploited, especially with the, the rise of industrialized agriculture. And, and that's really unfortunate because we put so much sort of emphasis on this one creature that they really have become the backbone of American agriculture. And so they say one out of every three bites you take is dependent on honeybee pollination. I actually think it's a little bit more than that because even when you look at, say, milk, for instance, you wouldn't think, well, bees make milk. No, they don't, but they do pollinate the alfalfa, which feeds the cows, which then make the milk, right? So what's kind of I want to say my my newer mission um, is to really sort of set the record straight on that sort of scenario because there have been fossils found in the American Southwest, in Nevada in particular, of Apis mellifera nearctica, which is actually a honeybee and that existed close to 14 million years ago. So like horses, they were actually here on this continent, but then an ice age occurred, cataclysmic event, and we didn't see them. So I like to think of bees as well as horses, honeybees and horses, as being a reintroduced species. But they were here before, or cousins to them were here before on this continent. And so my approach to beekeeping, especially as one who has her, I have my own small farm now, is really approaching it from this perspective of reintroductions or in a sense that it's, I'm not trying to maximize. I'm not trying to get as much honey as possible. I'm not trying to have as many bees as possible. In fact, I'm a pretty small operator in comparison to what we do have here in the States. I have anywhere between 200 to 300 hives, depending on the year and the season. And there are operators who have 10,000, even 80,000 colonies of beehives. So I'm very small potatoes in comparison, but it is a large um, part of my livelihood. And I see it as my contribution to supporting not only local pollination needs, but to supporting biodiversity. So within my own beekeeping, I am very mindful of the other 4,000 different kinds of solitary um, bees that we have on this continent. So I try not to oversaturate any area because that's how the exploitation is 
is pronounced and is furthered is if we get too many hives in one area and it then outcompetes all these other species that also need pollen and nectar. And some of those other pollinator species are what we call specialists, right? So honeybees are generalists, meaning that they, they eat a variety of things. Some of the other pollinators that are specialists only rely on one particular flower. And so if that flower is already you know, pollinated and the nectar's already sucked up, then they don't get the food they need. And so that really impacts that, that broader web of biodiversity. So I try to be really mindful about it. And I also consider my approach to it too, mentioning the biomimicry factor is that nature has figured out Mother Nature and Father Time have figured out how to develop these processes, what we call these ecological services that have kept so many different organisms and landscapes alive. And so for us to think we can just come in there and change it and do what we want and we're in charge is pretty arrogant. But there's a lot we can learn from just natural processes and how can we mimic that or replicate it in such a way that it's being managed by us as humans, as mankind, but it's more in tune with just the natural laws. So I see that with my beekeeping and my bee breeding in particular, I consider myself to be a seed saver where the bees themselves are the seeds. Not all bees are the same. Within the honeybee species, there's actually close to 30 subspecies of honeybees. And so one of the cool things, as I mentioned about the kind of bees that they had in Paraguay, but what took me on my recent storytelling a fellowship through Fulbright and National Geographic to Spain was looking at various what we call ecotypes or subspecies of honeybees. And so in Spain in particular, they have their own endemic strain of honeybees it's called Apis mellifera iberiensis. There's Apis mellifera sahariensis, Apis mellifera lagustica, which we also consider to be what we call Italian bees. Apis mellifera caucasica, which is um, a Caucasian bee, but that's actually from the Caucasus Mountains in Eastern Europe. And they're actually a very dark bee. So there's over close to 30 kinds of these subspecies or ecotypes. And they're all related. So they can intermate with each other. And it's just to put it in, in terms that might be easier to understand. It's just like humans, right? We're all human, but we have different races of humans. But as humans settled in different parts of the world, they became really adapted and attuned to those particular environments. And so the same goes for these different honeybee strains. And so I, I was working for the beekeepers for a period of eight years before I finally got the courage to start my own small farm with a farm partner. And he's, he's actually from upper um, Michigan. And so he needed bees that could really do well in the cold, right? And actually after Peace Corps, I had gone to work in Hawaii for about five years where I started learning about queen rearing. And that's when I really got to see, wow, beekeeping as a, as a skill or what I like to call an artistic science or scientific art can take you around the world. But it's also very distinct. It can be site specific depending on what kind of bee is there and depending on what kind of landscape, whether you're in a tropical climate or a desert climate, or a mountain climate, it really can can be quite distinct. And that just became quite fascinating for me because I I then wanted to see all these different kinds of bees and in their own elements and how, oh, sure, how they work. And to, yeah, and really kind of pull it together as to, okay, well, here I am in this particular part of the U.S. where we have the deserts, we have the plains, we have the mountains, 
what kind of bee works good for us here? So I try and find those bees as a as sort of a seed saver, finding these different seeds or these different bees that do well in our particular fluctuating climate, and then try to respectfully reproduce them following the natural calendar, their own biological cycles, and then share those with other beekeepers. It was kind of an impromptu thing. I don't know if I for, really formalized it. These observations kind of built on each other over the years. I've had plenty of mentors and I still have new mentors that I'm always um, tapping into. And one of them in particular had told me anybody can have bees, but in order to breed them, it takes a career. It's taken years and years. And in the States in particular, because we don't have these established ecotypes, such as they do in Africa and Europe and the Middle East and Asia, bees were reintroduced here. Bees started to adapt and migrate and really then become mixed. So we don't have any real pure strain or pure ecotypes here in the States. And as industrialized agriculture really took hold and expanded, the same thing that's happened with our food crops has happened with our livestock, which bees are a form of livestock. And when I say livestock, I don't mean like put a tag in it and give it a number. It's more that it's alive and it has value, right? And so what we see is that, yeah, when you go into the store, you see maybe what, three, four different kinds of potatoes, but there's actually over 200 varieties worldwide, right? And so the same with our bees, we started to see just a few kinds that were really reproduced over and over again. And a handful of larger producers really kind of running that that system. So industrialized agriculture has really uh, even affected the beekeeping industry. There's not very many commercial producers. And the ones that are large scale tend to produce the same things over and over. And so the diversity, the genetic diversity of our American bees has really started to to dwindle and so much so that there are some some researchers who feel that there's a real genetic bottlenecking. So when you get a genetic bottleneck, then you can start to get inbreeding, right? And when you start to get inbreeding, the bees don't have the natural ability to really perform as well as they could. Then you add on pesticides, loss of habitat, compromised agricultural practices, all these different things. And so it's a lot of different whammies especially on this one critter that's been exploited and become the backbone of American agriculture. So my efforts have really been to show an alternative to that approach, which is we can have bees, but we can have bees responsibly. We can also promote all these other various species of bees, which there's over 20,000 worldwide, but there's over 4,000 here in North America that we have, whether that's bumblebees or sweat bees or what we call helicted or alkaline bees. We have blue orchard bees. We have so many different kinds of bees. And I just barely mentioned a few, but we have over 4,000 <laughs> kinds. So honeybees have really broadened my world to the larger world of pollinators. And my Peace Corps experience also really broadened my mind to just global food systems and the real importance of what I call place and purpose in pollinator conservation. So I've I try to approach things not only from my my studies that I've done in various places, but a lot of it is very much rooted in my indigenous heritage and in my indigenous worldview, which is that we are all connected and that we are all relatives to each other, even us and the animals, we are relatives. And so we have a responsibility. When I talk about the importance of place and, and purpose, there's also power, right? But that power is responsibility in how we steward 
our our planet. This is incredibly educational. I am learning so much and I'm so thankful for your expertise and the studies you've done. Why is it that the honeybee is the chosen one? You were talking about the specialized pollinators. I want the butterfly to sustain itself. I want those little, and I don't know what they're called, but the little colorful, beautiful moths, the hummingbirds. Mm. I would like the hummingbirds to sustain themselves as well. Uh, They're not an insect, obviously. We do need the honeybees. What do you see as a researcher out there with other people you've talked to who might be researching the butterflies or the hummingbirds and not losing them? That's a really good point. I like this question because we do have to ask ourselves, if we want these various organisms to sustain themselves and to survive, then what is it that we need to do or should be doing in order to allow for that to happen and especially for it to happen naturally, right? And unfortunately, the Anthropocene era, which is us, this man sort of dominated era, era has really altered a lot of things. We've altered the landscape. We've built dams. We've put in roads. We've blown up mountains. We've, you know, made lakes. We've really changed the landscape. And then in how we've stewarded it, we've changed it. So we really have affected these other organisms that have used these various lands just like us to survive. And so how can we undo that? Well, we can't fully undo it, right? We still need to drive from here to there. I'm sitting in a vehicle, right? So obviously I drive. But how can we find a a way so that it's symbiotic and that, that we can coexist? right? And really support um, a quality of life that's, that's positive for all these organisms. So what's really interesting is that there are a lot of efforts, there's research efforts looking at various other kinds of pollinator species to help with pollination needs. The blue orchard bees, leaf cutter bees, there's a few of these, uh, what we call mason or carpenter bees, so they live in wood or even in, in mud that they make tubes out of it. There are some efforts to to manage those, meaning to to start to keep those kinds of bees and to be able to share them for agriculture. One of the reasons honeybees have been exploited, though, is because the management of them is actually quite forgiving. They can live in a variety of different conditions in a variety of different even abodes, right? And so they're more manageable than some of these other species that say live in the ground or live uh, in reeds. So it's really hard to manage those that you can't find in a tree trunk and you keep the tree trunk. Over time, there's over 200 patented hive designs But again, there's only a couple or a few of them that have really become more popular over over time, even though there's so many and people can create new ones, as long as they respect what's called bee space, which is the very critical spacing between the combs that the bees like to follow. And so interestingly, I think one of the reasons that honeybees have become so exploited is for several reasons. But one of the main reasons is that they produce food for us above and beyond their pollination services, right? They're producing honey, which a lot of these other solitary species of bees, they make a little bit of honey, but just for themselves and for their young, for the, for the next generation. Honeybees, on the other hand, because they're generalist pollinators, so they can visit a variety of crops, 
but the fact that they can grow in their own hive numbers means that they have a lot of workforce. So they can collect a lot of honey and they can collect, if it's a good area, they can collect more than what they need. So then as a beekeeper, we can go and harvest what is extra, right? So there used to be, well, there still is, there's three kinds of, of bee people. There's bee killers, bee havers, and then bee keepers, right? I don't um, think I killers, like the first one. <laughs> right. So bee killers were kind of these, I mean, let's go back pretty far back in history, right? Where uh, a wild swarm was found and you would just cut down the comb and take what you could and you destroy the nest, right? You would just take it. Bee havers were people who, well, we have them, but we don't really manage them. If a piece of comb drops and we can get it and keep it, we will, but we're not going to necessarily go in there and destroy the nest, right? A beekeeper, on the other hand, is somebody who is actively managing and working with, with the creature. So whether that's chickens, horses, goats, lizards, frogs, there's frog farm, I think in Brazil, or bees, you're interacting with them and you're providing what they need. You're making sure they have all their necessities taken care of, or at least you're trying to manage for that, trying to make sure they don't get sick. And you're also bringing them into your place or into specific places that you're choosing to have them, right? So it's one thing if a bee came a colony came, a swarm moved into a tree in your backyard, you can't necessarily go in there and manage them, right? So you have them, but you're not keeping them. But if say you live in the city and you decide, I want to have a hive in my backyard, I'm going to order one. I'm going to order a package of bees and I'm going to buy some wooden ware to put them in. Then now you are specifically choosing to bring them into that space. And that is a big responsibility. And I think sometimes people forget that because we think, oh, well, they're just insects and nature provides and you just put bugs in a box and let them do their own thing. Well, that would have been great and all had we not changed the landscape. But we've changed the landscape. We've built cities. We've put in sidewalks. <laughs> We've been very strategic about what plants are planted even on medians or what have you. So I think it's it's something to be noted that when people decide they want to have bees, that they really do their own research into having them. And that's what actually kept me from having my own for so long. I worked for other people for a period of eight years as a beekeeper, but not having my own hives. And I was learning so much and I, and I thought, gosh, there's so much to learn. I'm never going to be ready to have them. But then I hit a point where I was like, I'm always going to be learning with them. Every season is different and every hive has their own personality. And so I finally decided, okay, I am ready to have my own and to try to do right by them as best I can, which I don't, some years I lose hives. They, they die, whether it's yeah. due to viruses or not enough food or what have you. So my management choices are to try, like I said, to mimic what nature in her ideal state can provide for them within reason, right? So my bees, if they're going to be hungry, say there's a drought, I can either leave them in my, in the apiary, which is where they reside and bring them food or let them starve, right? So I'd have to make a choice. If there's a drought, do I bring them food or do, can I take them to new pasture or do I just let them starve? And so I make the choice if I have another place to take them I will burn the fossil fuels to put them on a truck and drive them there because I'd much rather they have natural forage than anything that I could make that may sustain them, but that isn't healthy in the long run. However, if it's drought conditions everywhere and there's no, I can't find another place to take them, 
then yeah, I'm definitely going to make what I call a tea. And I try and make it as, as close to nectar as I can. I mean, it's sugar water, but I add a bunch of different um, herbs to it and tea bags to kind of infuse it with these herbal essences, which is what bees normally eat is nectar and pollens from, from plants in nature. So there's, there's different ways of beekeeping. And I think as people figure out what their full own philosophy is, what their community has and what their community can support, meaning the landscape, then they can determine, you know, if that's a good fit for them or not. And what I like to really encourage people to do, similar to your guest you mentioned from Norway, is that bees are, are needed and more beekeepers are needed, but not all in the same spot. And it really starts first and foremost with habitat. So we really need to build up and support and keep our wildlands and our wild landscapes and even our urban landscapes diverse and have a variety of blooms so that it can feed all the various organisms that deserve to be on this planet along with us. Join me next week as Melanie shares more of her positive imprints and her queen bees. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.?